Father, I thank You for Your great love. Who can comprehend, who can imagine the breadth of Your love, the height of Your love for us? So infinite that You would send Your only Son, Jesus Christ, from His home, from His honor, from His glory in heaven, to come to earth, to live the life of a lowly carpenter in a dirty corner of the world, to be mistreated, mocked, beaten, and ultimately tortured to death that everyone in this room might find right standing before the holy God of the universe. It's unbelievable, Your love for us. So Lord, as we come this evening to remember Your death and remember the sacrifice that You made on our behalf, it's our prayer that our hearts would be humbled and contrite and broken over the great sacrifice that You made for us. It's our prayer that You would be honored by everything that we do and everything that we say here this evening. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I want to thank you all so much for coming and welcome you to our our Good Friday service this evening. We're going to take a little bit of time this evening to reflect on the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. This evening we're going to be taking what we'll call a journey to the cross. My goal this evening is that you'll have some time to take a unique look and some time to reflect on the events of Jesus' crucifixion and His death. As we do that this evening, we'll be taking a a walk through what we call a series of 12 reflections. And we're going to allow time for you to respond to several of those reflections. We're going to allow you to take action on some of those. But I do want you to know that some of the reflections may be a little bit graphic in nature. So if you'd like to send your children 12 and under, if you have any of those in here this evening and you want to send them upstairs, we do have kids programming and I would encourage you to do that. So in your bulletin that you received as you came in the door, there's an insert that we're going to refer to several times uh, as we go through our 12 reflections. And I'm sure that we have caught you on your way in, but if any of you do not have one of those bulletins, our ushers have those, and I would ask that you just raise your hand, and Juan Carlos will make sure to find you, make sure that you have a bulletin for this evening. And as he's doing that, I just would like to remind you of a couple quick notes, if I could do that before we begin. First of all, and this is very important, I invite you to be, to be present tonight, be engaged. I want you to think about what it means for us to be here tonight. Be, be mindful of His presence. Be mindful of the reason that you've come here this evening. I'd also encourage you to remain silent for the duration of our journey as we go through our 12 steps, and our, or as we go through our 12 reflections. I'd encourage you, of course, to silence your cell phones if you haven't done that already. I would also encourage you to close your eyes. I would encourage you to spend some time thinking as we go through these reflections. And I would encourage you to allow your mind... Allow your mind to focus very intently on the Scriptures as we read tonight. And if you need to close your eyes as we do that, and as you begin to develop a picture in your mind's eye, I would encourage you to do that. So I'm going to say that we can get started this evening, if you're all ready, as we take a journey to the cross. And for our very first reflection this evening, I would like to take you to the very, very beginning In the account of Genesis 1, Scripture tells us that in the beginning, God created all things. And you know what He said? He said it's good. He said this is good. N.T. Wright once said that all the beauty of the world, the beauty that calls our admiration, the beauty that calls our gratitude and our worship at the earthly level is meant as a set of hints, a set of hints of conspiratorial whispers, of clues and of suggestions and flickers of light, all nudging us, all nudging each of you into believing that behind this beautiful world, behind it all, there's not random chance. There's a holy, 
awesome God. You know, when God created the world, He was purposeful at His work. It was not thoughtless. It was not merely thrown together by the hand of some unknowable cosmic force some distance away from us. But when God created, He created perfectly. Every aspect, every single detail from the most distant galaxies that your mind can imagine to the most intimate human relationships that you have ever experienced. Those were all completed to unimaginably precise specifications by the most perfect and the most creative mind. It was absolutely perfect. It was good. It was very good. The Bible tells us that it was very good. So I would like to just ask you for our first reflection this evening rather to take a few moments and I would like you to just for a moment try to picture in your mind's eye this infant world in all of its perfection. Imagine what the world looked like when it was first created. Imagine what it was like when every single relationship was completely perfect and pure and God-honoring. Absolute perfection. People were in perfect relationship with God. People were in perfect relationship with other people. Imagine that. Can you imagine? Utterly perfect. So I would like to ask you to take just a moment and allow your mind to think of all the good things that God has created in this world. What are those? I'd like to ask you to take your bulletin out. And I want you to just write down a few of those things. Would you mind doing that? What are some of the most perfect things that your mind can imagine when this world, when this universe was in its infancy? It was very very good. I'd like to take you now to our second reflection. As you know, mankind did not live in perfection for very long, did he? God created all things in Genesis chapter 1. But by the third chapter of the book of Genesis, three chapters from the very beginning of the Bible, Man had already chosen to sin. And it's there that we find what is known as the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. And at that very moment, the Bible teaches us that all things, once perfect in this infant world, became corrupt. In fact, the corruption of God's perfect creation was so extensive that Romans 8.22 tells us that all the creation groans. It groans under the decay of sin. All of God's perfect and holy creation. All things that were once perfect had now been corrupted. Nothing that had been created escaped. It had all been infected. It had all begun to decay. Humanity was infected with decay from top to bottom. In fact, Romans 3.23 tells us that it was so complete that every single man who has ever lived of all times has sinned and he's fallen short of the glory of God. So as we reflect on this, 
I just want to remind you that everything is broken now. And I want you to think about that. Think about all of the relationships. Think about all of the experiences that you see day in and day out that bear witness to the fact that God's perfect creation is now broken. And I want you to think about that deeply. Can you see it in your mind's eye? Can you see the brokenness? Now go back to your bulletin insert. I'd like to ask you to write down some of the thoughts that you see, some of the things that show you the brokenness of this world. How do you see brokenness in this world? How do you see brokenness in your own life situations? Is it illness? Is it sin? How do you see brokenness in your own heart? Our ushers are coming around with buckets. And inside of those buckets are some stones. And I would like to ask that each of you in this room take one stone. And I want to ask that you just hold on to that as we go through our journey this evening. And as you look at this stone, I'd like to ask that you allow it to remind you of your sin. I'd like to ask that you allow this stone to remind you of the decay of sin that has now infected and corrupted God's perfect, flawless, and very good creation. And as you get this stone, and you look at it, I'd like that you uh, allow this stone to represent the sin that is in your own life. In our last reflection, we read that all have sinned, so you know that you have sin in your life. John tells us if we claim that we have not sinned, we're liars, and the truth is not in us. Think of the sin that has been present in your life and is present even today and allow the stones that you've just received to symbolize your sin and your brokenness. I'd like to move now to our third reflection. I would like to just ask that you follow along as I read the following passages with you. I want you to allow them to create just a very, very vivid picture in your mind. I want you to imagine that tonight you're not sitting in this room, but you're sitting in the grove of olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane, which means oil press. And as you sit there in this grove of olive trees on the side of this mountain, the moon is full and the moon shines. And not only does it illuminate the things in the garden, but it also casts shadows. And in the full moon, and in the shadow, of the olive grove, Jesus, in Luke 22.39, went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and His disciples followed Him, on reaching the place, he said to them, Pray so that you won't fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw. Beyond them, he knelt down and he prayed. And he said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and it strengthened him. And Jesus, being in anguish, prayed even more earnestly to the point that his sweat was like drops of blood falling onto the dark ground. And then in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus returned to the disciples from his praying. 
He said to them, are you still sleeping? Are you still resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. Because here comes my betrayer. As we reflect on this scene, I trust that you've been able to create that picture in your mind. But as Jesus is in this garden among the olive trees, He knew all the pain. He knew all the suffering that He was about to experience in just a few short hours. He knew the punches that would batter and bruise His face. He knew the spit of sinful men that would soon be dripping from His beard and into His eyes. He knew the crack of the whips which would soon shred the skin on His back. He knew the nails that would be driven through His body. He knew the blackness. He knew the weight of sin that He was about to bear. And in just a few short hours, He who had never, ever done anything wrong in all of His life would experience every painful situation that I've just highlighted for you. And as He was in the garden, knowing what was about to happen to Him, He chose to stand up and to walk forward. He chose to experience it all on your behalf. He chose to do it. And I wonder, can you feel the anguish in His heart? Can you feel His struggle? Can you feel the agony as He says, not My will, but Yours be done? You see, He was on a mission. The sacrifice He was about to make on your behalf was not an impulse. It wasn't a spur-of-the-moment decision. He knew it was coming and He deliberately, willfully, as one who was on a mission, chose to stand up and walk forward and take the journey to the cross in spite of the great cost. In spite of the agonizing pain. In spite of the terrible fever. In spite of the humiliation. He chose to do it. For you, He chose to love. He chose to sacrifice. So I just wonder, is there an area of your life where you need to make a choice to sacrifice? Is an area of your life where you need to make the choice to love even if it comes at the highest cost? As we move into reflection four, then there was the one called Judas Iscariot. This one who had been one of the closest and most trusted friends of Christ went to the chief priests and he asked them, what are you willing to give to me if I will deliver him over to you? And so they counted out 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And Matthew 26 tells us that while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd of armed men with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. 
Now, Judas, the betrayer, had arranged a signal with them. He said, the one I kiss, that one is the man. Arrest him. So going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him over and over. And Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and they arrested him. You saw the bag of coins, and you can hear as they're dropped into the bag each of the 30 pieces. That's what Jesus Christ was worth to Judas. You ask, how much is your integrity worth to you? Would you betray a friend for $20,000? What's your price? Why do we seem so quick to compromise our values over a few pieces of silver? What about Jesus Christ? How much would it take for you to betray Him? What's your price? Or maybe you've already done it several times. Was it popularity? Is that what it took? Career advancement? Friends at school? Is there a certain man or woman you want to impress? Had to do it, you're willing to turn your back on Christ? What is the price at which you would kiss his face, turn your back, and walk away from him? I want to share with you reflection number five. O Yeshua, Kri Mashiacha, Hula Mashiacha, Hula Me, Uhalel, Shedzib Baraba, Shedzib Baraba, Shedzib Baraba, Shedzib what was it like for you just now to hear that crowd? Did it trouble you as you saw his face? Did it trouble you as you saw Barabbas about to be released? We understand that later Pilate would symbolically wash his hands of Jesus. Can you sympathize with Pilate? Can you sympathize with him wanting to just give in? How much more of the screaming, how much more of the demanding could Pilate possibly have taken? See, he took the path of least resistance. I wonder in what ways you and I take the path of least resistance, take the easy and the lazy road, even if it means injustice committed against others. You saw as he washed his hands. I wonder. Are you able to think of areas in your life where you act like Pilate did? An injustice? Because quite honestly, sometimes it's easier than choosing what's right, isn't it? And as we make it to Reflection 6, I'm going to take you to Matthew 26. Now Peter, sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also 
with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it. He denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him. And she said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, Peter denied it. This time with an oath, he swore, I do not know the man. I swear I do not know the man. And he called down curses on himself. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you were with him. Your accent gives it away. And he began to call down curses and he swore, I do not know that man. And immediately, a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Sometimes our betrayal isn't motivated by money as it was with Judas. But it's motivated by some of the other things that I mentioned, isn't it? Social acceptance. Popularity. Opportunity to advance. Your bulletin insert I want to ask you to write this phrase down. Take your bulletin insert out. And can you just write down these words? I do not know the man named Jesus. I do not know the man named Jesus. And let it serve to you as a sharp reminder of the times that you, just like Peter, have denied Christ with your words, with your actions, maybe with your non-action. And I wonder, what did you gain? What did you get for it? What was the price at which you kissed His face, you turned His back, and you walked away. What was the price at which your actions shouted aloud just like Peter, calling out curses on yourself for the whole world to hear, I do not know that man. I don't know Jesus. And in Reflection 7, he Pilate had Jesus flogged and he handed him over to be crucified. And then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and they gathered the whole company of soldiers around him and they stripped him of his clothes and they put a scarlet robe on him and then they twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and then they knelt before him and they mocked him and they said, Hail, King of the Jews! They spit on him. They took the staff. They struck him on the head with it. Again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and they put his own clothes back on him. Satis! Mandatum erat un cominem punire! Non eum castigare usque ad mortem!
Some death may be considered noble. Some deaths are quick. But the death of Christ was neither one. You see, it's one thing to kill a man. But it's another to shame him and to humiliate him. Think for a second. The King of Heaven, the Creator, the Sustainer of the entire universe, with human spit on His face, whipped and beaten by human hands. Imagine the disgrace. Humiliation is so much greater than we could ever begin to fathom. And then, after they had beaten him, after they had whipped him to within inches of his life, Then, reflection eight, they came to the place called the skull. They crucified him there, along with criminals. There's one on his right, the other was on his left. And Jesus said, Father, Forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Jesus talked about loving enemies and he talked about forgiving other people. But here at the cross, he goes so much further than just words, he goes so much further than ideals. Here on this cross, He teaches us with an example of the nails digging and tearing through his flesh while the hammer is hovering. Jesus intercedes and he offers forgiveness. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So in your life, there are people who have mistreated you. There are people who have committed horrible atrocities against you. Who are the soldiers with the hammers and the nails? Who are the people in your life to whom you need to extend forgiveness? I'd like to ask you on your bulletin insert on reflection number eight to write those names down. You heard the sound? Of the nails that were driven into his hands and into his feet to hold his bloody back. on the upright of the cross. If He paid that price to forgive you, can you pay a much smaller price to extend forgiveness to those who have offended you? No matter how deep the hurt is, I wonder. And in Reflection 9, it is finished. It was now about noon. 
and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out in a loud voice and He said, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. And when He had said this, He breathed His last. And then John's account of the death of Christ, John tells us in chapter 19, later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. There was a jar of wine vinegar there. And so they soaked a sponge in it and they put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop and they lifted it up to His face. They lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when He had received the drink, He said, it is finished. And with that, He bowed His head And He gave up His Spirit. As we sit here, looking at this cross, looking at the life of Jesus symbolized by the candle, I wonder if you can imagine yourself standing there at the foot of the cross with His mother and with the other women who were there. And I wonder if you can imagine What was going through the minds of those women that day? I mean, can you feel His presence at His death? Can you imagine yourself there in your own mind's eye? Can you feel the heaviness? Can you feel how broken His mother must have been as she sat there looking up at her beaten, bloodied, sacrificed son? Can you imagine the agony in her heart? Can you imagine the sorrow of His friends? Can you imagine the emptiness. Can you imagine the confusion? He wasn't supposed to die like this. I wonder, can you feel the darkness as his life is gone? Now to reflection 10. John tells us that later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph, he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. And with Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. And he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought with him a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices, strips of linen, because this was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden was this new tomb in which no one had ever been lain. And I wonder, as the women, as his mother, as the disciple John, whom he loved, watched, as Joseph and Nicodemus prepared his body, Did they watch as they wrapped him up? Did they watch as they poured 75 pounds of spices on him? As they sit there watching that, how could they reconcile in their own minds that this was supposed to be the Messiah. This was the one who would save them, and yet 
There he lies. Dead. Bloodied. Beaten. Broken to the pleasuries. Almost unrecognizable. Wrapped in cloths. In place in the tomb. The Messiah was dead. Can you imagine him thinking that? But John 16, 7, I tell you that I am going to do what is best for you. That is why I'm going away. The Holy Spirit cannot come. The Holy Spirit cannot come to help until I leave. But after I'm gone, I'll send the Holy Spirit to you. Imagine with me what one of Jesus' Jewish followers may have said at the time as they watched his body being buried. Do you think this is what's best for us? They humiliated you on the cross, and we're humiliated too, because we put our trust in you. No wonder Peter denied you. Maybe it wasn't out of fear, but out of sheer bloody rage that this is how the dream ended. How can you think that this is what's best for us? We put everything we had into you. Our trust, our belief that you were the one who could save us. You offered a taste of welcome, a hint of grace, a touch of freedom. For a moment, we glimpsed a new world, and you promised an eternity of that. And we trusted you. We're left wondering which is worse, that it ended like this, or that you knew it would end like this, and you took us with anyway. You see, the death of Jesus had shattered, completely destroyed every belief that his followers had about who the Messiah would be. His death shattered it all. beliefs had been broken. They must have wondered if their faith was placed in the wrong man. I wonder, has there ever been a time in your life where you've had a belief that you've had about God and the cruel death of Jesus on the cross forces you to confront that? Many people ask, how could a loving God allow this to happen to such an innocent and perfect sinless man? He did it for you. He did it for you. I'd like to ask you as we move to our next reflection to take the rock that you were given. I want you to hold it in your hand and just take a look at that for a moment. As you look at that, I would ask that you just allow it to symbolize every sinful attitude, every sinful action that you've ever had. Every sinful reaction, every sinful impulse, every time you've ever raised your hand at someone that you love, every time that you've ever taken an action that was falsehood, every time that you've ever missed the mark, everything that you have ever done 
that does not meet the full glory of God. Every error, every sin, every sorrow, every brokenness. And let that rock that you're holding in your hand, simple as it may seem, let it symbolize all of those things. Further, you should also allow it to symbolize all of the hurt that you've ever caused to someone else. And this evening, when our service is over, as you're walking out the door, I want you to take that rock that you're holding in your hand and I want you to drop it into the buckets of water that are near the door there. Do it quietly. And as you do it, let it be a symbol of your sins dying with Christ and your life being washed through the death and the blood of Jesus Christ. So I'd just like to ask that you would take your card and in Reflection 11, I would just like to ask that you write your name in the blank as you renew in your own mind what your understanding of what Christ has accomplished for you on the cross. Friends, listen to me. If you believe in Him, if you believe that His death was enough to satisfy the righteous requirements of God, you're forgiven. Everything that that rock symbolizes, every thought, every action symbolized by that rock, if you believe, you've been forgiven. Of all of it. The power of sin in your life, it was broken. It was broken by the death of Jesus Christ. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. For all of it. I just want to ask you to just close your eyes for a moment. And I'm going to read a passage to you from translation called The Message is one that I don't commonly use, but I think this is very good. And I want you to close your eyes, and I just want you to listen to the words of Paul in Romans chapter 6. With your eyes closed, if we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? That's what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life and a new land. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ. A decisive end to that sin-miserable life. No longer at sin's beck and call. What we believe is this. If we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, then we also get included in His life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. You see, when Jesus died, He took sin down with Him. But alive, He brings God down to us. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means absolutely nothing to you. And God speaks your mother tongue. 
and you hang on His every word. You are dead to sin. You are alive to God. That's what Jesus did. That means you must not give sin a vote in the way that you conduct your lives moving forward. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly and full-time. Remember, you've been raised from the dead. So throw yourselves into God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live anymore. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. Now, through the death of Christ, you're living in the freedom of God. We've come to our last reflection for the evening. Here at the table of the Last Supper. You see, this is where it all started. With the bread and a cup of wine and a promise. This bread and this cup that we're about to take, they're about that body and that blood. You see, this bread and this cup are about a new covenant between you and God. They're about righteousness that is given to you, not earned. They're about God fixing the sin problem in your life once for all. The bread and the cup that we're about to take are about how He so loved the world that He gave His only Son. They're about His faithful forgiveness. The bread and the cup that we're about to take, they're about His reckless and powerful grace. The bread and the cup about you no longer being condemned. They're about you remembering that your sin is forgiven. The bread and the cup are about how everything is now moving back in the direction to ultimately end the way that God designed it to be originally. So I'd like to invite you to share in the Lord's table with me remembrance of his death, if you would, this evening.